guys. Good to be with you in person. Got to join with you, uh, I guess not live, but I watched the service and was able to worship with you guys a couple couple of days later. Actually, technically, uh, about a week later. I looked at it yesterday morning whenever we got back in town. And um, I appreciate Parker for having the opportunity to be able to come in and to be able to teach and preach on uh, just a passion of his, which is the Minor Prophets, but specifically the book of Amos. And if you have a Bible, I hope that you would join with me in the book of Amos. Amos chapter 3 is where we're going to be today uh, in my Bible. It's page 1291, and so you should be able to get there very quickly and uh, be able to find where you're supposed to be. As you know, when we started this, we were going through this idea of, well, it's Amos and it's summer, so we got famous Amos going on. And so uh, just kind of a little bit of just for fun, a little bit of quiz time for those of you that were here last week and the opportunity that you had to be able to... Um, uh, to, to listen to Parker and to hear what he had to teach. And you, this, is, this is open book, so you can use your Bible. Uh, but he preached through and he looked over chapter 1 and 2 and just the first verse of chapter 3. But in the midst of that, he, he did mention that there were all these different kingdoms that were being brought and being uh, discussed by the Lord that were going to face some kind of judgment or discipline from the Lord. And does anybody, can you, can you name even one of those uh, from all of those different kingdoms? I think there's about eight of them total. Does anybody remember the names of any of them? Israel and Judah. Here you go. Congratulations. Anybody else know? There's, there's a whole bunch of other ones. Anybody know any other ones? Anybody? Moab? <laughs> Pass that to Connor. Good job. All right. So what we're going to be looking at today is Amos chapter 3. And I love that Parker uh, has the passion for this book and for the minor prophets. But as we take a look at this, uh, I, I want you to recognize that I believe that what we're looking at is a very timely topic and a very timely study. Uh, even while we were gone, I know the Southern Baptist Convention, it was taking place. And I know there's a lot that's going on within the convention. There's a lot that's going on just within uh, church life in America. There's a lot that's going on in the world outside of the church. And I believe that this is a word that we would have the ears to hear what the Lord has to say, not because we want to live out of legalism, but we want to live out of his love for us. And as a, re as a result, respond to his willingness to speak up and say, hey guys, you need to pay attention, otherwise the blessing that I'm giving you doesn't seem to keep you in line at this moment. There might have to come discipline in your life in order to get you to where I need you to be for, yes, my glory, but also for your good. So look at Amos chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says, Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Proclaim. On the citadels or the palaces in Ashdod and on the citadels in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressions in her midst. But they do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord. 
those who hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels. Therefore, says the Lord God, an enemy, even one, surrounding the land will pull down your strength from you and your citadels will be looted. Thus says the Lord, just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away with the corner of a bed and the cover of a couch. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. For on the day that I punish Israel's transgressions, I will also punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and they will fall to the ground. I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish, and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. The year was uh, about 1997. I was a junior in high school, and I was in chemistry class. Uh, me and chemistry did not get along very well, and I can remember our teacher was out for the day on a day where we had a huge test, and a substitute was in. And the substitute came into that class, and he obviously didn't really seem to care for his position or what he was doing. He said, all right, I'm supposed to give you guys this test, um, but I understand what it was to be in high school and how difficult this is and how stressful it can be. And so uh, for those who want, I'm just going to give you the answers to the test. And I remember there was this dilemma within the classroom of do we take the answers to the test or do we stay firm in integrity of going, that's not right, that's inappropriate. I remember just a handful of us said, we, we don't want to take the test by you just giving us the answers. We feel like that that's not correct. And he says, okay, for the duration of the test, which is me giving the answers, if you guys would just go ahead and step out into the hall until we're finished. So we stepped out in the hall and we waited until the answers were given to the test by the substitute teacher. Well, as you know, some of you are teachers. Some of you understand that teachers know everything. They hear everything. And when that teacher came back, she had discovered and realized very quickly that all of the answers were correct on all of these tests that were turned in, and that's not normal. And she began to investigate it and realized what the teacher, substitute teacher had done. And the substitute teacher was immediately dismissed, never coming back to our public school system. And as a result, she came in and she said, everyone is retaking the test. It'll be a brand new test. And what happened was sometimes we're like, oh, substitute teacher, easy day. It's true. You might have gotten, we might have gotten what we wanted on the easy level for some of my, my, my classmates of getting the answers to the test, but what you forfeited was one, your integrity, but two, knowledge. You're just regurgitating what it is that someone told you who was an unworthy teacher and was just merely that substitute. Sometimes what we have is we find in our life, we have these security, we have security in these substitutes. And what happens is, is we're going to find in Amos chapter 3 that the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, is finding their security in substitutes. And as a result, God is going to indict them and impose discipline upon them. Because he doesn't want the substitute to take away from what is the real thing, the authentic thing, which is God himself. So God substitutes, here's the key today, God substitutes our sin substitutes. We, 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 we don't want those things in this life that we say, well, it, it gives me security, it gives me comfort, it gives me ease, it gives me identity, it gives me purpose. 
We got to be careful with those things in our life, and we're going to kind of flesh out what that looks like, some particulars as we get into it. But these are things that we have to be careful that we would substitute to be in the place of only what God can do because it just leads us astray. And so as a result, I want us to pray, and then we're going to jump into Amos 3. Pray with me. Father, I'm asking that as we study your word today, as we look at the prophet Amos and what you had to say through him, that you would help us to see and to identify the substitutes that are in our life. And so if you would, where you're at right now, would you just ask the Lord, that the Lord would just help reveal to you that you would recognize what might be those substitutes in your life that are taking the place and the priority of God. And if you would, would you pray for me that this would be a, a time that would be of help to you for our good and for his glory. Well, Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. To give you a little bit of context, if you haven't been with us, Amos opens up the book from what we saw just a couple of weeks ago of where he talks about how the Lord is roaring from Zion and that we want to hear the lion roar because if you don't hear the lion roar, that's a bad thing. Like he's warning you with that roar. He's trying to get your attention. And then last week, if you look at chapters one and two, there was kind of just this barrage, as I mentioned earlier, of these different kingdoms that had surrounded and bordered the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. And what happened was, is God is saying, these different nations, I'm aware of what they have done and what they are doing that is completely evil and vile and against who I am and against my justice. And so my title for that time was that they were caught in the crosshairs of God's judgment. But what's interesting about that passage, this is what I love about Amos in these first two chapters, is Amos talks about, first of all, he says, man, Damascus, Damascus is going to get it because of what they've done. And I can just hear the people hearing the prophet Amos going, yeah, Damascus, they need to get it. They, they, they need to be punished. And then he says, well, and we got Gaza. Gaza, those are the worst decadent Philistines. They need to get theirs. And then he says, and Tyre, don't forget about Tyre. They're going to get punished. And they're like, yeah, Tyre needs it. And then Edom and then Ammon and then Moab. And then, they, and then, Amon, or excuse me, then Amos says, and Judah, Judah's going to experience the punishment and the discipline of God. And they're like, yeah, our little brothers down south, they deserve this. Like, they, they have just done some despicable things. And what Amos is doing is he's almost kind of like pushing them exactly where he wants them to set up this trap of like, you see the vile and the wicked in those nations, but I'm setting you up because the last and the eighth nation that I'm going to impose my judgment and discipline upon, I'm going to talk about it for the rest of this whole writing, is you. It's so easy for us in this room to go, that guy, that girl, that nation, that institution, man, God, just would you just hammer them just a little bit to get their attention because they are just so vile and wicked. And what God is saying is, you need to recognize I'm in control, I'm sovereign, I will take care of them. But what about you? And this is why I say for us here this morning, it can be easy for us to be like, well, I'm doing my, my, my weekly routine. I'm doing my thing as a Christian. I'm showing up to church. I'm reading my Bible throughout the week. And we're going through the motions of things. But if we're not careful, we've missed the heart of who we are as a people of God. And we can become blind to the things that are around us, the things that we're engaged in, the things that we're immersed in. And we don't realize that, that we've drifted. 
It's so easy for us to subtly drift from the things of God, the Word of God, or the people of God, and the standard of God. And God is saying, no, 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 no more. Don't do it anymore. Quit substituting things that you think are going to be good enough that would take my place. It's not possible. So, as we see in the first two verses, we're going to see the peril of privilege. The peril of privilege. I know Parker mentioned this last week, but he's absolutely correct. In verses 1 and 2, it gets very personal. God is now not just talking about, in generality, what they're doing uh, that's vile and wicked. He's specifically coming after them and saying, I've chosen you. You're, you're the, the family that I brought up out of Egypt. Like, you're my sons. This is a dad talking to his kids and saying, you're mine. It's getting very personal. And he's wanting to rescue them. He's wanting to love them. And, but, but, but the peril of privilege has taken place. The, the privilege that they have is that they are the chosen people of God. That they have been re- revealed all of these different things, and yet they, they stray so far. If you have your Bible, it's not going to be on the screen, but you can look with me in Amos 2, verses 6 through 8. I believe Parker read this last week, but I just want to go back to it again so that you can get an idea of how God's chosen people have drifted so far from the standard of God. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. They're abusing the innocent. Why? For profitable gain. They're all about the money. This is perhaps for the northern kingdom of Israel, their most prosperous time economically. And they are just loving it. Their 401k is just thriving. And that's all they care about. More, more, more. Even if it's stepping upon those who are downcast and downtrodden, it doesn't matter. Those who pant, verse 7, those who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless also turn aside the way of the humble. And now it's not just the idea of oppressing the innocent or the poor or the needy. It says, and a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. There's sexual immorality that's taking place within the camp, within the kingdom, northern kingdom of Israel, to where they were going to temple prostitutes, and they were taking the pagan practices of those that were around them, of fertility cults, to go into a place of worship to Yahweh and saying, this is how we're going to conduct ourselves. And God is just like, no, vile, disgusting, not what I'm approving. And on the garments... Verse 8, on garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. There's drunkenness. There's, it, it's just not a pretty picture of where the northern kingdom is at. And you go, man, how could they get that far? I, I, when we got home yesterday, Tiffany was showing me some stuff, just kind of getting caught up on some things, and there was, some, there was like a TikTok video that she showed me of, uh, of a famous... Um, a pop singer, especially like I guess when I was growing up and she's trying to revitalize her career. And it was one of the most vile things I've ever seen. I was like, why are you showing me this? And we look at that and we might giggle at it or we might say, oh, that's just ridiculous. But what we've done as a church and as just Christians in general is we've gone far too long of just saying, mm, it's not hurting me, so what does it matter? I think we've seen that we've had generation now, if not more so, if it doesn't hurt me, so why should I worry about it, is that it does hurt us because it hurts the entire community because we're connected. And the church wants to remain silent and non-confrontational, and I, and I get that. We don't want to get into people's business. 
But I, I even heard recently that there's a, there's a hymn within our convention that they took out the word sin because it's offensive. They wanted to put in the word mistake. And what we, what we need is we need to hear a word from the Lord, even if it's hard or even if it's uncomfortable, in order to recognize the gravity of the situation and the stakes that are, that are on the line. That the innocent are being oppressed. I'm so grateful that we're a part of a church family where one of our elders has a passion and a heart to want to help those who are the least of these. Not because we're better than, but because God has blessed us and we have, an, a, we have one, a hope to be able to present to people who need that hope and need that life, but two, we do have a means because we have been privileged and blessed by God to be able to be a blessing to others with what we have. And so we give sacrificially of our resources and our time and our abilities. Because there's so much more at stake than just going through the motions of things. It's the souls are at stake, the communities at stake, the cultures at stake, and the glory and the fame of God's name is there. Like God, God is going to be okay without us as a church. He's been doing fine even before time began. Like God is good, but He wants to use us and He wants us to represent Him well for His good and for uh, for our good and for His glory. Parker hit on this last week, and I and I totally agree with it. You read in chapter 2, it's awful. How can you respond to this? Because this reflects on God. When God's people, His worshipers, are behaving this kind of way, it reflects on God. It doesn't make God any less than who He is. His standard is still there. But a watching world, when they watch us, when they're watching the nation of Israel, they're saying, man, Israel is this country, this nation that's called out by God. They have a covenant with Yahweh. He gave them the law. And we're supposed to reveal God to the world. But if the world bases who God is by his worshipers, all they're going to see is a reflection of their own pagan practices. How is that helpful for them? How is that a stark contrast? We don't need to see more of ourselves, but rather we need to see the one who is set apart, God Almighty. So my question is, how, how about you? What would people learn about God from you? That's, that's going to kind of be an unsettling question at times. What would people learn about God by your actions, behavior, speech, conduct, if they could even get into your mind? Like, what, what would people learn about God? Would they have a, a pretty clear picture of this is who God is according to Scripture? Or would they be like, I don't, I don't see anything different from how I behave to how you behave? And it's not that we are engaged in a part of the culture that is around us. We absolutely should be. We're not supposed to be monks that just kind of go into our monastery and we just hide. We're not supposed to be a people that come into a church building, if you will, and treat it as a fortress where we huddle up and go, oh, I hope the world doesn't get to us. We're supposed to go out into the world representing, revealing who God Almighty is in His holiness and His love and His grace and His justice and His wrath and His goodness and His mercy, all of who God is. That's what we're called to do, to reveal Him. And God is saying, what you're revealing about myself, nation of Israel, northern kingdom, uh, that's not who I am. So what words would people hear out of your mouth? What, what actions, conduct, behavior do people see? What about your time? Where do you go? What do you do? Do you ever rest? Do, do, do you follow that principle that God has given us of, of, of rest? What about within your relationships, within your family, with, with, between you and your spouse? Does it look like Christ in the church, or is it like the furthest thing from Christ in the church? But what about the way in which you engage with your siblings or your children, your friends, your enemies, the elderly, the outcast, the thing that we've been highlighting this whole year of those that we live, work, and play with, like your neighbors and your coworkers, like... As you're engaging life with them, I'm not saying that you've got to sit down and say, hey, here's, here's the four spiritual laws, or here's the Roman road. 
But as you're just living life, my, my hope is that because we love Jesus and nothing else is substituting his place in our life, what, what just oozes out of us is a revelation of just who God is and that people would see that and be moved by that. That's our privilege. You have been, as it says in Ephesians, that you, ha- you have been called out. You have been set apart because of your faith in Christ. I, I pray that we would, as the Apostle Paul would say, that we would live in a manner worthy of our calling. Why? Not out of legalism, but we have a God who is worth other people following and placing their life and their hope and their trust in, and we want to point people to him. They would go, I'm not looking at Stephen, I'm looking at, at someone who's representing something even greater. So that's the peril of privilege. Secondly, the proclaiming and patient parent. Do you like my alliteration? I worked really hard on this. The proclaiming and the patient parent. Verses 3 through 10. What you have in these first few verses uh, is, uh, is, is what you're seeing is you're seeing that God isn't like some parents. God is patient and, this is key, and he follows through. Parents can easily allow that pendulum to swing of either we go to one extreme of abuse or the other extreme maybe of neglect as opposed to just a a balanced biblical center because our God as Father is perfectly loving, kind, and gracious and at the same time He is just, holy, and set apart. Today's Father's Day. And with Father's Day, I had an opportunity with some of our guys that were here. I got to speak at the BCM about who God is as our Father. They were going through a study of the Trinity and I got that topic of God is Father. And I shared with those group of college students, I just reminded them that there's a whole bunch that Scripture says about God as Father. So we don't have time to be able to unpack all of it. But two key words, and I would give them to you today, two key words when we think of God as Father is, well, who is He? He is the authority. He is the authority of all things. And the second thing is, okay, that's who He is, but how does He relate to us? And He relates to us by love. He relates to us in love. What he doesn't do is he doesn't do as some, some earthly fathers have done. Is It seems that some earthly fathers, if we're not careful on Father's Day, and I hate it when pastors just beat up on fathers on Father's Day. It's, like the, it's, it's just not good. Uh, but, but recognizing that there are these different categories that we can easily drift into if we're not careful. We don't want to be that absentee father. And what I mean by that is either you're just literally gone, not living out your responsibility, or you're there, but you're not really there. Your, your body is in the room. There's a warm body in the room, but you're not engaging with your family or with your children. There's also the abusive father, whether that be verbally, sexually, uh, physically, uh, whatever it may be. Like We have to be careful with that as well. We have passive fathers who want to abdicate their responsibility and just put everything maybe upon their, their, their spouse or maybe upon another sibling. We don't want to be passive in our fathering. We have selfish fathers who want to just say, well, how you're behaving, um, I don't really like that or I want to live through you, uh, whatever it may be. But, but hopefully we have those fathers who say, I'm not perfect, but I want to be beyond reproach as a father and I want to be loving as God our Father is loving to us. I'm going to be the authority within this home, within this, this, this uh, calling, this role that God has given me, but, but it's, going to be, it's going to be undergirded and have a foundation that is love so that I don't go to one extreme or the other. And the love that we want to demonstrate as fathers is, not just, is the same love that God demonstrates. God has a cherishing love as our Heavenly Father, but He also has a challenging love as our Father. He's willing to challenge us, discipline us, to be able to confront us whenever we go wayward because he does love us. That's the kind of love that he has. 
When you look at verses 3 through 6, there's these questions that are asked in Amos. And in these questions, the answers are supposed to be obvious. For example, do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? Well, obviously they don't. This is so funny to me. I think it makes sense to even today. I probably am not just going to be like, hey, Doug, let's, go, let's just go for a walk and not talk at all. Like, weird and why? <laughs> now, I think maybe some ladies, because of the whole bathroom thing of like, hey, let's just, you want to, I'm like, I don't get why you need company, but that's something that, 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 that ladies will do. But as guys, I can definitely say, I'm not like, hey, let's, let's, let's go to the restroom together. Or two, hey, let's just go for a walk together, and, um, and we'll, 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 just, we'll just walk. We can be silent. And it's like, no, no, no. There's a purpose behind the walk. There's a purpose behind this. We want to have an appointment. We want to discuss something. That's the kind of thing that he's talking about here, is these are obvious questions with obvious answers. And as he goes through it, he comes to the point at the very end, and he says, if a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? And the answer is, yeah. Surely the Lord, verse 7, surely the Lord, God, does nothing. And I love that Amos says, I'm going to give you his name Yahweh, and I'm going to give the name Elohim, and I'm going to make sure I'm talking about God, the God of creation, the God of Israel. This is who I'm talking about, so there's no mistake Surely our God, the God, the Lord God, does nothing unless, and underline that word, unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. This is beautiful. The, the kind patience of God and his willingness and wanting for us to get the message. God is, what Amos is saying is that God is not a God who's just going to be that haphazard dad of, you've done something out of line and it's just... Uh-uh, that's not our God. Our God as Father is one who is going to say, warning is going to come again and again and again because I'm patient and I'm steadfast. But there is, there is a limit to that of where I will not let this just go on forever. And he's saying, I'm, I'm warning you. I'm literally using the prophet Amos, Northern Kingdom, to hear me and hear what I have to say. God does the same for us today. God uses his word and, his, and circumstances and discipline in order to shake us at times out of our religious stupor and see the reality of the sin or the substitutes that we have in our life. And he's like, man, get away from that thing. I love what Parker mentioned last week, that we are called to draw near to God. And that means that as we do so, there might be some things that God needs to refine out of our life that we got to let go of, that we got to get rid of. In verses 9 and 10, he talks about Ashdod and Egypt, these different citadels or these different palaces. Ashdod was in uh, the coastal city of, uh, of the Philistines, Egypt. We, we know about Egypt. And what he's saying is, hey, I want these two pagan nations to be witnesses, to look upon the judgment that I'm going to bring down upon Israel, Samaria. And what he's saying is even these two pagan nations are looking down on you guys and saying, oh my goodness, you guys are vile. <laughs> I cannot believe how, 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 how just, like, that, that's disturbing. I can't believe that you guys are doing this. And it's pagan nations looking at this and saying, yeah, God, you are right on to stop that kind of behavior, that kind of conduct. And finally, thirdly, let's look at pulled down palaces and plundered prosperity. This is... This is the good stuff. Okay, so what God does in verses 11 through 15 of chapter 3 is he's arguing his case of judgment against his chosen people, and he does it in three ways. In verse 11, he does it militarily. This is one thing that they've substituted for God is their pride and their military. When he says, 
In verse 11, an enemy, even one, surrounding the land will pull down your strength or your strongholds from you, and your palaces, your citadels will be looted. He's saying, you guys have been trusting in your military, and your trust in that military is going to be so easily decimated that even just one foe will be able to rout and destroy you. It will be absolutely devastating, so much so that he gives the example of a shepherd snatching from the lion's mouth one of his sheep. Because this is what would happen. Oftentimes, in that day and time, there would be a shepherd that might be, uh, as we talked about when we talked about I am the good shepherd back in, in, in spring, there could be a, a hired hand who might be watching the flock or watching the sheep. And if that sheep got away and was captured by a lion or a bear, whatever it may be, the shepherd wasn't just supposed to go, oh, that stinks. Good luck, little sheep. They're supposed to go and get the sheep because if they don't bring back proof of whether it's like a bit of a hoof or a bit of an ear to be able to say, it wasn't my fault, the lion got him, but I did my best to show proof that this is what happened, that you would come back and you would say, see here, the lion got him, here's his hoof, here's his ear, Mm." and so he didn't have to pay back for that sheep because it was the lion. What God is saying here is much like that, where those little sheep were just destroyed and devastated by that enemy, that lion or that bear, is going to be the same for you. You're going to be laying in your citadels or your palaces, your nice winter summer homes of ivory, and you're going to be laying there, and all of a sudden the enemy is going to come in suddenly, he's going to attack you, he's going to pull you, and you're just going to be hanging onto your couch, or you're going to be hanging onto your bed, and he's going to rip you away from that, and that's all that's going to be left is pieces of bed and couch. And what he's saying is this, One, it's going to happen quickly, and two, the thing that you've been clutching to, which is your material possessions, and it's made you lazy, incredibly lazy, you'll just have a bit of a piece of that to hold on to and be reminded of what it used to be. It's a a terrifying image. The The second thing, the second way in which God is arguing his case of judgment against his people is religiously. Verse 14, He says, for on that day, I punish Israel's transgressions. I will also punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and they will fall to the ground. This is where he's saying, you've been holding on to this religious activity because you are my chosen people. You are under the covenant. You do know the law and you like that tradition. And this is where we got to be careful. Tradition and history can be great, but tradition and history can also be dangerous if we allow it to be, become more than it's supposed to be. And what they're doing is they're not, they're, they're, they're in love with the tradition of their religious system, but they don't really want to keep their religious system. They just want to go through the motions of showing up at church or showing up at temple and, and being able to say the right things. It might help them for business. It might help them as far as their, their, their outward appearance, but it's not doing anything. And what he's saying here is that I'm going to punish the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altar will be cut off. What that means is there would actually be a big square altar that would be fairly high off of the ground. And at Bethel, one of the two places where the northern kingdom decided to have sacrifice and worship again for money and power, but they would bring sheep or different animals to be sacrificed there upon that altar. And as they would do that, on the altar, on one of the corners, there would be these horns. And those horns were represented as a place of like safety a place where you as a, as a person, let's say you were an outcast or you got in trouble and someone was trying to come after you, you could run to the altars of that, of that uh, run to the horns of that altar, grab those horns, and your adversary couldn't do anything to you legally because you basically found sanctuary on the horns of that altar. 
And what God is saying is, your religious activity is so egregious to me, I'm bringing those down, and the safety that you think you can find in your religion is going to be gone. It's just going to be gone. You're going to try and grasp for those horns of sanctuary, and they're not there. You're going to look up and realize, man, what, what, what happened? The third case that he brings up is not just militarily, religiously, but also uh, materially. Verse 15. He says, I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house. Again, huge economic time of the northern kingdom of Israel. They had two homes. The houses of ivory will also perish, and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. What happened is that Israel was finding their security in these areas of life, the military, religion, wealth, and stuff. These were their substitutes. And when we find security in substitutes, God is going to indict us and impose discipline upon us. Now, God's discipline is hard, but isn't discipline always hard? Like, did you ever as a child go, discipline me, Dad, I can't wait, you know? I, that's, that's what I'm really looking forward to. But the discipline of God is not designed or rooted in rage or malice, but out of care and concern. That's what we see throughout the entirety of the book of Amos. God is willing, because He's a good Father, to discipline and destroy his children's false sources of pride and security, and he's willing to do that for you too. And you may not want him to, but man, we need him to, to take us through, as Parker mentioned last week, that fiery furnace, the furnace of God, in order to refine us and get rid of the things in our life that do not need to be there, those substitutes that cannot take the place of God. For them... It was their pride and wealth and religious tradition and their security in the military. And so again, I come to this question, what about you? What about you? What in this life do you really cherish or that you're really proud of? Now, now hear me, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with being proud of something or someone. There's nothing wrong with taking pride in your work or your kids or a project that you're working on or the church that you're a part of, whatever it may be. There's, not, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think there is something that should be said to us that we want to take a moment to really think and examine that the thing that you are proud of has that thing or that person drifted into a territory that he or she cannot be and it's got to go. So maybe it's your job. You're consumed and you're obsessed with it. You're wondering about maybe even job security and the climate that we're in. Of like, will it be there in months from now? Maybe it's your kids, your children, your grandchildren. Great care and concern for them, absolutely. But taking the, the place of where God is supposed to be, no. Maybe it's friends or family. Maybe it's a hobby or outdoor activity. Maybe it's something as simple as your phone or a tablet or a computer or just entertainment of just the amount of time that your eyes are just consumed with that thing. And it's completely just taking you down paths that are not in and of themselves bad per se, but how much time do we need with that? It could even be good things as well as like our church family or our homes. As I said, a God substitute is a sin substitute. And God is willing to come along, reveal that, Reveal that substitute that doesn't need to be in the place of where he is and allow discipline to take place. So the question should be, for those of you in this room who are followers of Jesus, is what do you need to lay aside? Or maybe what do you need for a time to fast from? What, what do you need to put to, to, to the wayside for a bit of time 
not because, again, out of legalism, but out of just spiritual discipline of this has become too much of a stronghold or obsession for me. Can, can I tell you this past week, I, I wasn't on my phone hardly at all. And when I got home, I was like, I, I feel better. <laughs> and I feel a little healthier in my head. My brain feels a little bit clearer. I'm not, I'm not pulling up to see what the next feed is or what the next catastrophe is. And it's not that we need to be putting our heads in the sand and just ignoring things. We need to be aware and, 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 and know what's going on within the world and the culture that is around us. But just being mindful of like, there was legitimately like just a difference of, of, of an internal feeling of having a week separated from that for a time. And I would encourage you, whatever that may be in your life, it might be technology, but it might be something else of just, man, if I look at my if I look at my bank statements or if I look at my calendar, what seems to take up the most time? And it's not that we neglect those or completely forsake those, but we begin to examine them to see if they've come into a place that is far too much than where they need to be. So what do you need to lay aside? What do you need to give to God? For me, one of the hardest things is probably my name and my reputation. I don't want to sully the good name of Reed. Because I don't just represent myself, I, I represent my family. I represent my dad, my mom, my brothers, my extended family. And if that's true for me of not wanting to sully the good name of Reed, how much more so that I don't want to sully the good name of the Lord? Because of how I represent Him and how I speak on His behalf. And we all have that responsibility and that calling. We're all ministers of reconciliation. Years ago, I was playing basketball, and I can remember playing in that game, and uh, I was getting beat up pretty good. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I'm decent at basketball. Brian Campbell may disagree, but he's wrong, uh, <laughs> especially when I was in better shape, uh, and it wasn't 100 degrees outside, uh, but I can remember playing in a game, and it was a church league. If you ever played in a church basketball league, man, you've got to be tough as nails to go through that. That, that, that is some vicious basketball. And I can remember playing in that, in that church league, and I was playing with a group of guys that, no offense to them, but some of them barely knew how to dribble, let alone shoot a basketball. And uh, let's just say at that time, I had a bit of a temper, and I would get pretty frustrated with my teammates. And I remember at one point, I was just getting so mad, and I got a rebound, and uh, I made a no-look pass to this guy. It was perfect, and he's just staring at the, the basket, and it hits him in the face. It goes out of bounds, and I'm just like... I'm just surrounded by idiots. And I, I get to that point to where now I'm like, no one's going for, for the, for, to the board. No one's trying to get a rebound. So even small little me, I was like, I'm going to get down there because I like just you know, doing that and trying to block out and get a rebound. And I go for a rebound, and I get hit in the face with an elbow. I got a black eye. And finally, my dad, who is the coach, was like, Stephen, why don't you come out for a little bit? I was like, no, 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 no. I'm good. I'm good. He's like, no, 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 no. Uh, you actually need a substitute. You need somebody to come in. And, and I know I've talked all morning of how God substitutes our sin substitutes. But there is one substitute that is worthy to come into our life and take the place and be the one to do what we can't. And his name is Jesus. It's known as the great exchange there at the cross of where Jesus was willing to substitute his innocence and his perfection 
in his holiness, that, that he, would, he would take our place there upon the cross of what we deserve of our sin and our consequence of sin, which is death. And he is that wonderful substitute. And if it's anything or anyone other than Jesus, and they're substituting into your life, you're just going to continue to run through the motions of life like I was on that court and just struggling, getting beat up, getting frustrated, yelling at your teammates, acting like a fool, and that's going to be your life. Even doing ministry in the life of the church, you're just going to be exhausted and drained and beat up. But there's that one substitute where I, part of me wanted to say, my dad substituted himself. And I was like, well, dad's not Jesus. So the, the, the illustration only goes so far. But there's that one substitute who can come in and take your place and give you absolute victory and give you absolute rest. And so, yeah, I don't want to make assumptions just because I see that you're here. And I know many of your stories about your faith in Christ, but have you placed your faith in Jesus to be your substitute of who you need to take your sin and receive his forgiveness? And if you're not, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus for him to substitute himself in to give you life and hope, then friends, I pray that you would do that today or at least begin that conversation. And for others of you, I believe that many of you, you that, that is a reality in your life. That you've placed your faith in Jesus and you've, you've substituted. But my question, I guess, goes back to what I asked just a moment ago. Have you... Have you allowed anything else to take his place. Some of you, I imagine, are exhausted and tired for a variety of different reasons. And I'm not saying that it's, there's nothing wrong with being tired and working hard. But there's a difference between being just dragging and exhausted and being dragging and just exhausted spiritually. And I believe that there's enough truth within Scripture and the reality of just my life of how he will lift you up and he will renew your strength and he'll give you everything that you need regardless of what it is that you're going through. So if you would, would you bow your head and close your eyes? And as you do, just three final questions. Have you exchanged your sin for his grace? Have you exchanged your sin for his forgiveness? Have you substituted your hopelessness for his hope? Have you exchanged your death for his life? It's found in Jesus and Jesus alone. I hope and pray that for each and every one of you this morning, that you would take the time to be honest enough within your own life and your mind and in your heart to identify and recognize what are those areas of life, people, person, or things that are just taking a little bit too much priority. They're still important, but they're just taking a little bit too much priority. They are stressing you out. That might be a great indicator of something that's becoming more of a substitute than it needs to be. Maybe it's finances, maybe it's your job, maybe it's a relationship. Not unimportant. But man, we got to be careful about it taking a place that it doesn't need to be. 
And so, Lord, I pray for my family. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that they could walk away today being encouraged and renewed in their strength because of knowing who Jesus is in their life. And for some, maybe today, surrendering their, their life to Him, submitting every aspect of their life to Him. Repenting of those things in their life that need to be repented of. And they could walk away today free, a burden lifted. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you guys stand? Would you respond? Would you sing? Would you pray? Man, take that time that you need to spend some time with the Lord before we're done.